We love the power and grace of athletes, artists, and high achievers with their zest and grit. But have you ever wondered how they harness their energy and get into flow? And then what do they do with the money that comes their way? I am Darren Wright, author of Financial Fitness. Join me on a fascinating journey to gain a peek into the intersection of highly successful people and everyday financial life. There will be highs and lows and relatable flow stories for you. Welcome to Financial Flow. I'm your host, Darren Wright, author of the upcoming book, Financial Fitness. I've been advising successful families over 30 years on how to improve their financial position, which improves their overall lives. What became obvious over the years is that there's so much more needed to achieve and maintain elite financial fitness rather than the standard out-of-the-box traditional financial advice. This show is not about the economy or investments. I'm here to take you on a journey to learn how you can apply the success strategies of elite athletes and other successful individuals to make smart choices with your money and achieve financial grounding, balance, and your peak financial flow. All right. Welcome, Allison Schmidt, four-time Olympian, current 200-meter freestyle American Olympic record holder since 2009, 2016 and 20 captain of the U.S. Olympic swim team. She has won 25 medals in major international competitions, 13 gold, nine silver, and three bronze. She was the captain of the University of Georgia 2013 National Championship team. Go Bulldogs. Go dogs. Yeah. Uh, born in Pittsburgh, grew up in Michigan, and she's in the middle of five siblings. And you started swimming at age eight. Uh, is that right? I started nine, almost 10. I got into swimming because for water safety around five, but I joined the swim team nine, almost 10 years old. So unfortunately, any swimmers listening out there, I didn't get to do the 25 in competition, which (laughs) I wish I could have, but you know what? I think it helped with the longevity of my career. Yeah, so you you had talked about actually quitting back then. What were some of your thoughts? And I'm <laughs> and I'm sure that wasn't the only time you thought about quitting. Yeah, I was a kid, a middle child. I wanted to be seen and I wanted to be heard. And um, I was very fortunate that our parents let us do whatever sport we wanted to do as long as we committed for that season. Um, um, had good grades, went to church, and played an instrument. So we all did piano. And we could do any sport we wanted. Um, My favorite was soccer, but my oldest sister, she was not into the ball sports. So she started swimming. And like I said, I was a kid that wanted to do everything. So I swam as well. Um, I went to practice three times a week and didn't really have that close connection, friendship with the other teammates that were there five or six times a week. So I... Swam through the season. I met one friend at the end of the season and I got in the car after the meet and I told my sister that I met a friend. She asked me what her name was and I had no idea. And that was the whole reason I went back for the next season. (laughs) Oh, really? Okay. And why did you pick swimming over the other sports? I know that your, your siblings, I mean, they're all pretty successful, high achievers. What, what was it about swimming that made you want to pick that sport. (laughs) You're going to laugh at this, but 
Uh, thankfully, swimming is a non-cut sport, <laughs> which is why I fell into it. Um, like I said, I was a huge soccer player. I thought I was the next Mia Ham, had Mia Ham everything, Barbie dolls, everything. Um, but I got cut from the soccer team I want to make. And so at 12 years old, I was decided that, okay, I'm splitting my time between soccer and swimming right now. So let me put all my time into swimming. Did getting cut have an impact on you from soccer to swimming? Uh, I mean, I, that's a hard question, I guess. <laughs> Looking back, it's, was a great, like, I'm thankful that I got cut and was put into swimming. Um, but I'm very grateful for what sport has taught me overall in the values that it's taught me. Um, I think it's helped me be successful through my college career, um, through, I'm in my master's right now and helping me be successful in that part as well. So what, um, you've won a lot of medals, obviously in swimming. What do you think is, if you think back, what was the most satisfying medal that you won? Ooh. Um, so when I think about my Olympic medals, I don't have a favorite because they all have different meanings, but I really think I hold on to that gold medal of the 200 freestyle in London because that was planned so far in advance. Um, I remember in 2008, I got ninth. Um, I swam individually in the tunic free in Beijing 2008. I was ninth by one one hundredth, and I cried on the deck. Um, embarrassingly, I was that kid that was crying on the deck um, because I wasn't happy with my performance. And so I used those four years um, remembering that feeling of the defeat and being upset to motivate me for the next four years so that I could be on that podium. I don't think I had my goals set on the gold medal, but I just had my goals set in making that final and doing the best that I could in that final. And all that work put in throughout those years, being on that top of the podium and hearing your national anthem, it's something that I won't forget. Wow. I mean, I, I got to imagine that's incredible. I remember watching you swim and how fun it was to watch you. I mean, I, I don't know what it, what it is about the Olympics, but swimming is uh, seems to be something that just grabs the American public um, to watch you guys do your thing out there. Yeah, the support. I mean, even I remember on the podium looking to my right and seeing my family cheering that my family was able to travel and cheer me on and looking to the left and seeing all of team USA and seeing that. And just knowing when I'm looking at that American flag, that it's not about me. It's not about everyone there, but it's about everyone back home in the U S as well. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Um, you talked about using that defeat in Beijing to fuel you to success in London. So, Break that down a little bit because, you know, when it comes to finance, there's a lot of defeats that everybody has along the way. You know, you, you maybe pick an investment that isn't ideal or maybe you make a mistake financially and and you just have to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and so talk about that with your defeat and what was going through your mind over the next four years and and how you use that as fuel to reach your peak? Um, it is really broken down. Um, I'm glad you brought that 
point across because it wasn't just from 2008 to 2012. It was the years between. And I think I could have sat there in 2008, been upset and just been done with the sport. Uh, been like, okay, I'm going to go to college and then four years at college and just retire from there. But I had that drive inside of me and I had that motivation inside of me. So I'm not saying from 2008 to 2012, it was all uphill. And there was definitely some ebbs and flows um, in there, but it was just that dedication that I had within that self-motivation I had within to continue working towards that goal. And if I really break that down, um, 2009 in Rome um, is when I broke the American record. So the first year I did well. Um, if I go to 2011 Worlds, I got sixth place. I was first at the 115 and ended up getting sixth place. I then ended up redshirting my senior year, moving to Baltimore. So that was the best decision for me is to stop schooling, take a break, um, and move to Baltimore where I had previously trained with Bob Bowman, who's famously known as Michael Phelps' coach, and just having that team that's going for one goal um, really helped me to stay focused for that year. And I was able to really focus on what I need to do every day to get better and to be able to see that at the end, um, at the end of those four years and see that success made all the work and all the obstacles in the, within those four years really worth it. Yeah, I bet. So, uh, tell me about that in terms of everything you pulled together because there's, you had to be organized, you had to be disciplined with your time. You had nutrition, you had to have like a mental balance, I would assume. Like, tell me about all, pulling all that together for yourself during that period of time uh, in Baltimore specifically? Yeah, it's definitely about understanding what I could do. So I could go in every day doing the best I could do. And with the, the knowledge that I had, the best that I can do in these specific areas, such as you said, nutrition, uh, recovery, training, so I'm going in, I'm showing up, and I'm doing the best that I can do. But I'm also relying on my support system. So I'm relying on my trainers for nutrition. I'm relying on recovery, uh, masseuse trainers. I'm re relying on my coach um, for giving me that training program and that regimen. Um, but And I'm also relying on my family, my friends, for that support and that understanding when I'm not able to go home for Thanksgiving. I'm not... I'm able to go home for Christmas for one day. Um, I know that those are family events, but I was sacrificing that time to train for my goals. And so I really understand the support system and relying on others, but doing the best you can do with what you're good at. And at that time, I was good at training. I was good at swimming and I was going to do the best that I could do in my own training to get to that goal. So it was very important for you to be able to delegate and have a team of experts around you. It sounds like. Oh yes, for sure. And that's why I said earlier, when I'm standing on that podium, I know that it's not just me standing on that podium. That gold medal is not just mine, but it's the whole teams that had a part in helping me get there. Yeah, that makes total sense. And you had mentioned to me previously um, a story about Bob Bowman and helping him helping you achieve your goals. Um, and if you recall, it was uh, I think you were 
you had a bunch of 100 yard sets or meter sets and you did a specific time and you're really proud about it. And then you got out looking for at a, at a girl from Bob and he, oh, yeah. he said, now you got to do it every time or something. <laughs> yeah. tell, tell us that story. Oh, that was actually, so that was when I was 16, 17. So that was actually before Beijing. Okay. And I have at that age, I had just hit nationals for the first time. I know that's late for a lot of people out there, but to me, I was training in that group. Um, and I was, so it was long course meters. I know a lot of people don't know times, but I'm going 104s. And I'm like, this is great. I'm going 104s, hold eight of them at 104s. I get out, I go to the bathroom, I come back, and Bob's asking me about what I was holding. And I was like, oh, I was holding 104s. He looks at me and he goes, why aren't you under a minute? And I'm like, oh, like I thought I was 104s are pretty good. And he goes, get in and go under a minute. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I jumped in the water and I go a 57. And I think that was him saying that gave me belief that I could be better, that we can hit another level and we just have to keep training to hit that level and stay consistent in that level. And throughout my career, I can look back and say when I was at my best, I was the most consistent. And that consistency is huge. No matter if you have those downfalls or the highs, um, just staying consistent in what got you to where you are today. Okay. So dig a little deeper on that in terms of Bob telling you to get under a minute, you got 57. And then what was going on in your head moving forward after you did that? Um, belief, I would say. Um, uh, yeah, I'd probably say belief in just that understanding that you can't put a limit on yourself, that life happens how it is and you're the driver of that. So you are in control of how hard you push and what you push in. Um, but there are really are no limits to what we can achieve. Yeah. Amen to that. I, I am a big believer in the, in the saying green and growing or ripe and rotting, you know, especially when it comes to goal setting, you had mentioned to me, uh, something previously about setting goals. Um, and a friend of yours that was swimming in the faster lane next to you. And, and like one of your little goals was just to be able to swim with your friend. So talk about that in the context of goals, because, you know, when it comes to finance, we'll have like these big, uh, hairy, audacious goals. You want to do X, you want to, um, have a second home on the beach or something like that. But there's the incremental steps of what you need to do to get there. You know, mm -hmm. the blocking, the tackling and, and the day to day. So tell me about how you have set big goals, but also little goals and your, your mindset as a, you know, famous gold Olympic swimmer and how you've done that over your career so far. It's funny you say it that way because I can see it in the athletic world so much and it's little kids saying, I want to go to the Olympics. Well, at 10 years old, you're not going to be going to the Olympics. Uh, there's a lot of steps in between. 
Um, and if I sat here today and I had a hundred dollars in my bank account and I was like, I want a million dollars. Like, Oh, cool. Like, yeah, I do too. Um, but it's those steps in between. And so in the athletic world, it's those little steps in between and setting those little goals, but also celebrating those little goals, um, that you achieve. Because I know as us being humans, we like to celebrate, uh, it's, keeps that motivation going. It keeps that hunger alive, uh, within ourselves. And so in the sport of swimming, setting those little goals and celebrating those little goals makes you hungry for more. And so if I sit here, um, and say, I want to make nationals. Okay. I made nationals celebration. I want to win nationals celebration. I want to make the Olympic trials celebration. I want to win Olympic trials celebration and those stepping stones to get to where your final goal is. And for me, it, I'm very grateful that it was at the top of the podium at the Olympics. Um, I don't think I have grasped what that means, but because to me, it was the little goals that led me to that big goal. So tell me about the little goal with your friend trying to swim. What, in my, I call, I swim in masters occasionally. Lately, I've been terrible getting in the pool. Uh, it's been cold in Phoenix, but um, just been kind of a wimp. But um, we had the monster lane, we called it, and um, down at Phoenix Swim Club, you know, at Phoenix Country Day. And there's always former uh, collegiate swimmers swimming over there. And I actually haven't even had a goal of getting over there because it just seems too aggressive, but just getting one lane is oftentimes a big goal, moving up one lane. Mm-hmm. So, um, tell me about that story where you had a friend in one lane faster and he just wanted to be, be able to <laughs> swim with her. Um, yeah. So like you were saying, it's just getting, uh, climbing up that ladder to the better lane. Um, as you would like to say, the better lane. And everyone knows that, whether it's the white elephant in the room, there's always something better, someone better that you're aiming for. And so for me at, I want to say I was in my teenage years at that time, and I was the slow kid still. And I was the end of the slow lane. And as you know, being a swimmer, you hate when people touch your feet. And when you swim fast up to someone, you just touch their feet. And so I would swim up. That was my game. I would swim up and I would touch their feet. So I'd have to go in front of them. And eventually I was moving up lanes and I used that as a game. And so that was my everyday stepping stone. So every day I would want to try and touch someone's foot to get higher in the lane or to get into the next lane. And I'm huge into games like that. I think work can get very boring um, I like to keep things interesting. I like to keep things fun. And I also know how hard you have to work in order to achieve your goals. So I com- have combined them ever since I was younger. I've been able to combine them and understand that, okay, if I look at this little picture, what can I do in this little picture to achieve a bigger goal? And I think that's looking back on that story, that's exactly what I was doing without understanding that I was setting that little goal each day to try and get in a better lane so that I could swim with my best friend who was at the top of the <laughs> lane in the faster lanes. You you created the gamification of goal setting before 
That was even a word. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh, should I copyright that? <laughs> yeah, you should. Um, so you have a lot of high achievers in your family. Your brother swam for Pitt. You have uh, twin sisters mm-hmm. that played on the USA hockey team. Yeah, they uh, played four years at Ohio State uh, University. Okay. The Ohio State, especially us coming from Michigan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then they also lettered in basketball and swimming. Yep. Oh my yep. gosh. Yeah. So what is it do you think that uh, the way you were raised um, with all your successful siblings that caused you to have so much success? I actually wonder that same thing. Um, as I'm getting older and wanting to start a family, I'm looking back and like, how did my parents do that? Um, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I, I think they just instilled in us from such a young age to get the work done before play. Um, and if you can get that work done while playing, you go ahead. Um, but setting that standard that you're going to commit and you're going to do the best you can when you commit. And if you don't like it after that season, yes, then you can quit. But really instilling to do, I guess, really instilling those positive traits of setting a standard for ourselves. And I remember a few weeks ago looking back and thinking I never got in trouble for grades. I was very high achieving. I wanted A's and B's. I mean, my older sister, perfect score in her SAT, um, like national merit scholar. And it's just like, we never, we never got yelled at for our grades. We never got in trouble for our grades, but for some reason, and I don't know back when we were, under five, what it was like, but for some reason we all had that standard inside of us that it's not like if I bring a report card home that's under an A or B, my parents are going to yell at me, but I think innately I would be upset with myself because I didn't do the best that I could because I was too focused on something else. Hmm. Do you think that that was hardwired into you or more your parental upbringing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think a little bit of both. I think, yes, maybe we are with that competitive nature hardwired, but I think it was very fostered and it was developed in that upbringing. Um, I think if my parents are very removed and they didn't care about our report cards and they didn't take us to our practices. We wouldn't have cared as much, but they showed care as much as we showed care, which made it easier to, for success. Yeah, that makes sense. And, um, so right now you were, you're coming off an injury. Mm Mm-hmm. Double surgery, is that right? Yeah, I had my first surgery ever um, at 32 years old uh, this past September for my left hip, and then I had my right hip the end of December. How are you feeling? Really well. Um, Like I said, I didn't know what surgery was, and I have a whole new respect for people who went through surgery, but more more so for their caretakers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, my mom was an absolute saint in uh, taking me to the bathroom and me waking her up at 2 a.m. to go to the bathroom and I put on my shoes. I mean, I couldn't dress myself. It's, it's a hard thing at 32 years old to so much rely on someone else when you can't even get dressed yourself. But then again, 
I'm sure it was not easy for my mom to be taking care of her 32-year-old daughter. <laughs> I just have so much respect for people who are caretakers and for people who are differently abled. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that kind of, um, I guess, introspection is, is valuable. I mean, you had to have your mom help you out for a period of time. And, uh, you know, when it comes to finances, I think about that a lot. You know, you have to be your own steward uh, of your finances. And the, the term I like to use is you are the captain of your ship and the master of your fate. Mm. And so you have to be responsible. But there could be times later in life where we may need some assistance because we're either physically or mentally not able to take care of ourselves or maybe our parents one day will be like that. And so that's, that's all part and parcel of it too. So having that experience or someone actually had to take care of you at 32, maybe that'll give you some insight down the road too. I love that analogy. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what does a typical day look like for you when you're training, when you're in the middle of training, what does that look like for Allison Schmidt? So it depends on what part of training we're in. Um, When we go to Colorado at altitude, there are times we were swimming three times a day and doing a dryland or a lift on top of that. So that's four workouts in a day. Um, And how many yards or meters are you doing every day? I would say max we're doing 16,000. Um, uh, minimum on like the single days. And this is minimum would be around depending on the training phase. I would say the minimum would be around 6,000. Wow. And like how many calories are you taking down? Um, so that's crazy because I know that there's a lot of controversy around that. Um, and there's a lot of Michael Phelps was eating all these calories, um, on this training day, but I think that we're being an elite swimmer, we're more efficient in the water. So if you took someone off the street and put them into our workout, they would burn a lot more calories than we're burning because we're more efficient in the water. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like to use the term you were, you're like sleek dolphins, just kind of cutting through the water versus like a, a shark kind of thrashing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would love to feel like a dolphin. <laughs> So, uh, Michael Phelps, as you know, you swam at, uh, the pool that I swim at occasionally. Um, and I was in there once and I swear he took like three strokes and got all the way across the pool. And I'm like trying not to look like I'm swimming hard, but I was truly trying to, you know, swim my best because he's literally (laughs) in the lane next to me. Um, so Yeah, that efficiency. I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah, efficiency in 30-something years of mastering. And do you think that when you do retire from swimming that you'll keep swimming? Or do you never want to put your toe into the water again? I love swimming. I Like I said, I love what swimming has taught me, what sport has taught me. And I just have a lot of appreciation, kind of what you said at the beginning of this too. I love the sun. So I love when it's warm out, when the sun's beating down on you, but just the overall health I get from swimming, um, and both physically and mentally 
plays a big role on my day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, having that vitamin D from the sun, just being in the water. I mean, it, it's uh, a friend of mine calls it as church, <laughs> just being in the water. But I, I mentally do love it too. What do you, um, when it comes to swimming, how has that helped you uh, not just physically, but also emotionally? Um, talk a little bit about that or mentally, mentally, emotionally. Um, I think that swimming allows you to be in your own mind. I mean, you're essentially swimming in a box back and forth, back and forth for two hours. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of thinking, um, involved in that. Um, but while you're thinking and your mind could go elsewhere, it's also very important to stay focused and work on those little technique things. Um, every day is in a great training day. Um, like everything in life, there's ebbs and flows. Um, you could be having an off day and not training at your best, but making sure that you're able to focus in on those days and pick a few things that you can focus on. For instance, if you're not training the best, um, and you're not hitting the times you want, what can you focus on? And in terms of swimming, you can focus on your flip turns. You can focus on your streamlines. You can focus on the way you're pulling, uh, or your kick. And so pick something that you can focus on. That's something little that you can get a benefit out of that training day. Again, the gamification. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I've never really put a term to it. <laughs> Um, you and Michael Phelps have spoken publicly about your battles with depression. Tell me a little bit about that um, and how that's played a impact on your life. Um, so I was feeling quote unquote different coming back from 2012 Olympics, which is highlighted as my most successful Olympics. Um, and I, I never really understood mental health. This was back in 2012. I never understood it. I never really knew what it was about. And I knew that I was very grateful for my life. Coming from a great family, great education, great success, like in my sport, all those things, I didn't want to... I felt like I was complaining if I could say the, my true feelings inside. And so everyone wanted to see these medals. Everyone was telling me how lucky I was to have these medals, how they wish they were me. And at that time I was like, can someone please hear me? Can someone please understand me? Um, you can have these medals. Like I just want my happiness back. Um, so I didn't really know how to grasp with that. And it took me two and a half years to finally ask for help. Um, and I was at a breaking point, um, and completely just broke down in January of 2015. Um, and again, I was embarrassed about it. I thought that, like, how can I be going through uh, something with mental health? Um, I have all these great things. Like, I feel bad for the people who are worse off than me. And so it took until May 2015 when, unfortunately, uh, my cousin committed suicide a week after her 17th birthday. So sorry. Thank you. It's... It's definitely something that doesn't get easier with time, but it helps to spread her story and allow people that that's not the only, allow people to know that's not the only answer. And that if, she, if I could look back and 
or if I, we could go back in time and she can be alive and see how many people showed up at her funeral from sporting teams, from people she competed against, from school, from the community, um, from family. It was just amazing to see how many lives she touched. And I think with her not being here on earth, unfortunately, the best way to deal with that is speaking about it and allowing people to know that it is okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to isolate. Um, and I know that the hardest step is to ask for help, but it is the best tool in your toolbox to have is to ask for that help, which is what inspired me to go back to school and get my master's in social work so that I can work with athletes in the mental health field and help them know that these are normal thoughts. These are normal feelings and we can work through these together. Yeah. And that's amazing. You're going to be doing that work. Are you doing some of that work right now? Yeah. So with my master's, we've had, um, internships. So I've had, I had two years of internship. My first year of internship was counseling at Arizona state general population. Um, My second internship uh, with just a semester, I worked at a behavioral health hospital. And now this internship that I'm finishing up school with is um, ATH Mindset. It's in the Bay Area. We do telehealth with universities, with high school students. And it's been rewarding to me to help others through their journey. And it's not me telling as a therapist, it's not me telling them, um, how to live their life, but it's that exploration together that I can understand their story and help them figure out on their own, what direction for them to go into. Yeah. So are you getting any kind of feedback from people, um, in the community, other athletes, you know, talking to you and opening up about some of the struggles they have, they've had? Yeah, I think that in the past five years, there's been a huge shift of athletes coming out and talking publicly about their struggles, which is huge. Um, I think that if you look at it in terms of a needle moving around, um, um, a needle moving around a circle, we have slightly moved that needle into destigmatizing the, the negativity around mental health. But I believe that there's a lot more that we have to do in order to make a change. And that first step has been taken, but I believe that we have to continue to really work at that to really destigmatize that negativity around mental health and allow, I guess, allow others to know that being vulnerable isn't a weakness, but it can help you succeed not only in your performance, but in other, every other areas of your life. Well, it was, it, uh, is it Simone Biles, the one that came out and, and took a step back during the Olympics yes. from mm-hmm. competing? Yeah. Are you guys friends? Do you speak? Yeah. So Team USA is huge and I definitely know Simone. She's awesome. Uh, we've had um, many interactions <clears throat> being from Team USA. Um, so just being able to 
hear that from such a high profile athlete and another team USA athlete is pretty cool, but I have not actually spoke to her since that's happened. Um, but just seeing that in media, like you have Mm -hmm. has been pretty powerful. Yeah. I mean, in the old day, it was kind of like, Oh, just rub some dirt on it. You're fine. Don't, you know, what are you doing? But yeah, it's, it's, it's come a long way and, and thank goodness it has. And it's really cool that people like you and, and others are, doing the work that you're doing. Thank you. Yeah. Really making an impact. Um, does swimming help you deal with, um, I guess depression. So this is a twofold question, (laughs) (laughs) um, which is actually really funny. You asked that. So a lot of people have come to me and said, well, is swimming the cause is performance the cause. And I believe full heartedly. No, I think swimming has saved my life and having that structure has saved my life and having in my darkest times, knowing that it's, I still have a responsibility to show up for my teammates, not necessarily for me, but for my teammates, um, on those hard days and understanding that I made that commitment to my teammates and to my team to show up. Um, so I think having that, that was the only constant in my life at that point. Um, I was going through graduating college. I was um, moving to a different state and there was just so much juggle going on outside my life that swimming was the constant um, that ever since a little kid to where I was in that stage, it was a complete constant in a safe space. And so I really credit swimming to saving my life. Um, at the same time, I really do respect when people do have to step away. Um, I think everyone's situation is unique to themselves, uh, whether it's using medication, um, stepping away from sport, um, seeing a therapist, whatever that looks like for them. I think everyone's story is different, but just understanding as human beings that to be compassionate and to be kind and to be non-judgmental towards other people's stories. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of different ways that people approach it now. And in our last podcast, we had Dr. Courtney Hunt on, and she was talking a lot about the benefits of sunlight, which we get obviously when we're out (laughs) swimming, but in particular in the morning and in the evening, getting back on your circadian rhythm. Yeah. And, um, and I had this interesting interaction. So we had that podcast and then literally three days later, I was climbing Camelback mountain one morning at sunrise, which I like to do, uh, see the sun come up and I met this individual and, you know, sometimes you just decide, well, I'm going to engage in a conversation. Sometimes you're not. And for whatever reason I decided, all right, I'm going to engage with this guy in a conversation. And, um, He is a scientist that has been studying light and the impact on our mitochondrial DNA, which is also what Dr. Hunt talks about. But he actually started a business and he works particularly with athletes and NHL players, uh, helping them create a a blue light shield Mm -hmm. um, so that they, you you know, you're not taking in too much uh, of, I guess, the blue light. And um, also... Uh, um, uh, combat veterans and helping them because there's a correlation 
between not having the proper light exposure and depression and PTSD and um, also um, athletes not performing at their best. And so it was just fascinating to me because I ended up talking to this guy on the, the ascent up Camelback Mountain and we were just talking about this. And I'm also reading a book right now uh, from someone else that's talking about these things. So sometimes the universe kind of works in these ways, bring, bring this message to you. But um, I just find it interesting that, you know, there's obviously pharmaceuticals that can help you, therapy, like you mentioned, and, and this new approach to light and our devices and how really over the last call it 25 years, we have the the cell phone and the iPad and we're looking at these things and at night and it's sometimes it's the first thing we look at in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes it's the last thing that we look at at night and it's really impacting athletes and their performance and their mental wellness. Have you, are you familiar with any of this? Have you heard any of these kind of stories or this research that's been going on? Yes. Um, okay. Well, first of all, I want to like applaud you because I think that's a huge thing of within yourself of being open to other perspectives and you, um, even just saying that everything kind of lines up, it's crazy how everything lines up, but that's also you being open to that. And if you weren't open to that, I don't think you would have talked to that uh, guy up on Camelback Mountain. So I applaud you for that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I definitely, I mean, like we talked about at the very beginning, um, performance comes down to recovery, to nutrition, um, to workouts, and all of that's tied in together. Um, so sleep is part of that recovery. A whole nother aspect that we've got in the past 10 years is the social media. Um, the access to, and the, I don't even say the light exposure of that, but I do, I do wear blue light glasses, <laughs> um, especially around some meets um, when I'm on my phone, just to make sure. You do? Okay. Yes. So yes, there you go. Just to make sure. Um, and I get made fun of sometimes for it because they're like the big ones with like the yellow tint. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it's definitely a social media is a whole nother um, factor into that. And if you have an off day, if whether whatever sport you play, you play, you're, you're a swimmer, you're a basketball player, and you have one off time, um, you're definitely going to hear about that on social media. All those people that are sitting watching, all those people that are haysayers out there, um, they are going to hate on you behind a screen. And then not understanding that Yes, athletes are humans too, and athletes have feelings. And so if I go back and I look at social media after an off day, after a hard day, after a loss, and I look at that social media, that is a lot of negative thoughts and negativity about myself. And if I'm reading those out loud, I'm more likely to start believing those if I continually repeat them of what someone else is saying. So I think it's that's... what. It's a crazy question because I definitely think it's very important to not be on your phone around sleep time. And it's also important to not really read those negative thoughts about yourself because once we do read those, we get that in our minds and our minds are a very powerful tool that we can spiral at any time, unfortunately. Yeah, no doubt. I, I've been trying to practice the replacement method where you have a negative thought, <coughs> 
just replace it with a positive thought, but I actually use a three times multiple. So it really takes three positive thoughts to replace one negative. Mm -hmm. And if you really think about it, you know, it's that idea of being grateful in a way too. Like you could plug that in if you're grateful of something, but that's also in essence being positive. Um, but like, you know, I don't know, I'm going to fail at this podcast. Well, say, well, you know, I've, I've got this going for me, this going for me, this going for me, this going for me. So, you know, that, but, um, do you think you should avoid social media or just be able to manage it? Because, you know, there's two schools of thought, you know, some people say, well, you should just avoid situations. I don't think that's true. I think you should really just learn how to let it flow by you. You know, um, you don't avoid, you can't go through your entire life avoiding things. Mm -hmm. You know, if something happens to you, that's not who you are. That, that just, that's a thing over there. Um, so, but how do you feel? How do you feel? Should you avoid social media or should you just learn how to manage it and let it flow by you like a cloud and be mentally tough? What are your thoughts there? I am huge on education. Um, I mean, I think even speaking to you and speaking about finances. It's about the education. It's about understanding. It's about mastering the finances. And that's the same thing with social media. And it's all individualized. It's understanding yourself, understanding if, okay, I can read these negative things and use it as a motivational factor. I can read these motiva these negative thoughts and have them fly past me, not even think twice about them. I can read these negative thoughts and it, I'm going to internalize all those negative thoughts. So it can be any one of those. It can be anything in between that. It can be something completely different. So it's all individualized. I believe education is the biggest tool around that because if we're able to educate society on what you're talking about, distortion, um, or distortions, thinking of in distortions, um, or I guess cognitive distortions, it's really important to understand and recognize a cognitive distortion, um, and learn about that, then to internalize that. So if we're able to have the education around the cognitive distortions and understand that, we'll maybe get to our goal of, okay, I can read my social media after games or after meets and not take those comments personally to myself and call myself a failure because someone else is telling me I failed to make the Olympic team. Okay, I, yes, you might have failed to make the Olympic team, but that does not mean as a person, you are a failure. Yeah, well said. Um, Allison, when you reflect back on all of your accomplishments, what is the one word you would use to describe your success? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> um, oh. Man, you got me thinking here. I would say it's a mixture between consistency and support. And I say those two things because support, because I know that it's as individualized as they say swimming is. Swimming is a team sport. 
like I said at the very beginning, I'm on that podium and I'm, it's not my gold medal. It's not me standing up there, but it's everyone who helped me get to where I am and to get to that point. So I think support is one word that I would use, but consistency. And when I say consistency, it's all of life is ebbs and flows, uh, whether it's education, whether it's finances, whether it's your sport, whatever it is, there's ebbs and flows in every part of life. And understanding that the highs, yes, let the highs be highs and lows be lows, but let's not sit in those highs. Let's not sit in those lows, but let's find that consistent factor that we're in control of to help us reach that end goal and not get too high if we get if we reach a goal, but not too low if we don't reach that goal by a certain deadline. Yeah, that's well said. You know, I, I like the words consistency and I like the word support. For example, you know, it's it's my belief that you got to have support in uh, most things in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, sport, finance, you need to have the right people around you to help you get to your goals. And you also have to have consistency. Um and, you know, like an example with consistency, so I'm maybe answering the question for you, but with consistency, you know, people can get in their head about investing, you know, they're, they're up, they're down, maybe they, you know, the last, you know, year or so has been pretty difficult to make money out there, you know, and so um, staying, it's my belief that staying consistent is really important to getting to the end goal um, and I, I like to use an example is if you look back to the Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, as a barometer for investing. In the year 2000, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was at 10,500. And then 10 years later in 2010, it was at 10,500 again. So it, it basically did a little of this up and down, but it really had no gain over that decade. And some people called it the lost dec- decade. But if you look at from where it was in 2010 to today, I haven't looked today, but let's just say it's around almost around 30,000. So it went from 10,500 in 2010 to to 30,000, three times as much in about uh, 12 years, 12, 13 years. Mm -hmm. So if someone was just consistent about putting money aside, then they ended up getting to their goal, but if they got caught up in the short term, you know, they may, and they quit, for example, then they probably didn't get to their goal. So all that being said, in your mind, what do you think consistency and support can do for you with your own personal finances as you look ahead and you get ready to join the workforce? I think for me, it would be support. I know that my expertise is in sport and my expertise is now in social work as I'm getting my master's. Um, I'm not an expert in finances. Now I know some basic information. I know not to just go spend all my money or I know to save the money, but I don't know what to do with that. So I would say for me, that would be looking for support. And like we talked about with social media, there's a lot of people out that can say quote unquote facts, um, about finances, 
But are you really a master in finances? Are you really educated in finances? Or are you just putting that out there and then I'm not checking my my facts as a reader and believing those so-called facts? Or am I going to understand that I can go to an expert? I can go to someone who does this for a living, who has really studied finances and use that information to best sculpt what's best for me. Um, So I really look at using support in that um, because I know that I'm not good at finances and uh, I'll own that I'm not good at finances. That doesn't mean that 10 years down the line, I might not be good at finances, um, but that also is in my control to find that information that is from an expert and not just from some person sitting on the couch uh, eating 20 bags of chips and (laughs) not working. (laughs) All right. Well, and so let's, I always like to ask kind of a question to wrap things up here in terms of if you think back to being on the road in the Olympics, it had to be some pretty fun times, I would think, when you're traveling. So where did you? Where have you been? London, Beijing? Um, so the Olympics were Beijing, London, um, Rio de Janeiro, and Tokyo. So you've been to four. Four, yes. And um, between each Olympics is a world championship, two world championships, and a Pan Pacific championship. So even though TV picks up swimming once every four years, we still have our big championships every single year. Um, But my favorite place that I've been to, and I, it's crazy looking back on my career because I've been to. I can't even count how many different cities and countries um, around the world. But we saw a lot of hotels and pools. <laughs> um, not much more than that in those countries. There are a few times that we get a day every now and then to go explore the country. Um, but I really want to go back to Italy. I loved, I was in um, a camp before world championships that were in Rome. Uh, in 2009 and we were in a little town called Riccioni, Italy and I thought it was so cool A, that they have siestas in sleep (laughs) (laughs) for two hours during the day Um, but it was also pretty crazy how at 9 or 10 o'clock at night when they're at restaurants and eating and there's two year olds running around and you're like, back in America those two year olds are asleep at (laughs) 7 so I just love immersing myself in the different cultures and understanding the different cultures. Um, so I love to travel and I would love to go everywhere in the world, but two places I really am looking to go, especially in the next year are Italy and Greece, which I've never been to Greece at all. Do you have actual plans to go there yet? Um, I don't have flights, um, but I look um, quite a lot and I'm really big on looking on Instagram to see, oh, who's traveled to these places and what advice do you have? (laughs) And with all of your different destinations in the Olympics, what's, I don't know, you don't have to mention any names, what's the most uh, outrageous thing that you've seen um, along the way in your journeys to the Olympics? Um... I think the most eye-opening 
event I saw at the Olympics. And this one might stand up because it was one of the first events. So this was in 2008 and I had never I I had been out of the country one other time before the 2008 Olympics, and I will never forget leaving the dining hall, and in the Olympic Village, you cannot bring your backpack into the dining hall because they don't want you to take food out. They, like, eat, your, eat as much food as you want. It's all you can eat, but eat as much food as you want, and I will never forget seeing a different country have four stacks of trays. And they were just devouring food. I mean, this guy was maybe 80 pounds. And I was like, that's a lot of food. And um, at that time in Beijing, they also had these Snicker bars. Um, And that's the only thing you could really like put in your pocket and take out. (laughs) And I watched this guy eat devouring this food and then stuffing Snicker bars in his pockets. And it just blew my mind that some of these people are here to survive. Um, and it made me really grateful for our country and for the opportunities I have and knowing that when I go to the Olympics, I'm competing to be the best in the world. And I'm not going to the Olympics just to try and survive. Um, so it made me really appreciate uh, being an American, but also it gave me a different perspective that I might be able to help other countries and really spread again spread that education that let's try and make this a fair playing game play a fair playing field and allow you the opportunities that I've been so fortunate to have yeah wow well said amazing well Allison thank you so much thank you. really appreciate it um, I hope today's podcast brought you all a step closer to achieving your peak financial flow and you can pre-order my upcoming book called financial fitness on our website. And, um, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you. Yes, I definitely need to order that. Uh, like I said, I am not the master in finance. I wish I was, but I'll turn for you for my support in that one. <laughs> sounds, sounds awesome. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Alice Schmidt for being here today and thank you all for listening. We hope that you were informed and inspired to move even more into your financial flow for peak success. If you liked the show today, we'd really appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us on whatever channel you're listening on and most importantly, make it an awesome day. Take care.